You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So as a parent, one of the most dreaded phrases that I can hear from my daughters is, It's not fair. I don't know about your kids, but my kids can be hyper-attuned to making sure that everything they receive from me or from my wife meets their standards of equity. And their careful watch for fairness takes two forms. The first is when they are trying to make sure what I give them is exactly equal. The same amount of screen time, the same number of bedtime kisses, an equal share in the chores that we're doing as a family. I can remember one time where the complaints about things being fair got so bad that when I was serving ice cream for dessert, I had to break out the kitchen scale and prove to them that I was serving by the gram exactly the right amount, the same amount to each child. Um, That was probably not a healthy response, by the way. (laughs) Counselor talked about that to us later. The second way they watch for fairness is when I do give them the same thing, but one of them thinks that they deserve more than the other. Perhaps one of them was more diligent about cleaning up the toys and participating in the chores, but they both get screen time at the end of it. Or they tell them both to go to bed at the same time, but my older daughter says, I'm, I'm four years older than my sister. Shouldn't I get to stay up a bit later? The issue is subtly different, but the accusation is the same. It's not fair. And the second type of accusation is actually one of the primary concerns of the book of Romans. Paul is preaching a gospel of salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. But he anticipates an argument from the Jewish people that extending salvation to all is not fair. Didn't God tell Abraham that his descendants would be uniquely God's people? Didn't God make a covenant with the Israelites at Sinai when he gave them the law? The Jewish people have been following God's instructions about circumcision and dietary restrictions and keeping the Sabbath from generation to generation. They have practiced the sacrifices that God commanded. They have at least tried to obey the law that was revealed to them. And if God is now extending salvation to all people, what was the point? It's not fair. And Paul takes this argument very seriously. It's more than just the complaint of a petulant child. It concerns the very character of God. Because if God has told his people that salvation comes through following the law, and then he has suddenly changed his mind, it calls into question his integrity. He becomes another fickle God, like those who surrounded the Israelites, who were always changing their mind about what it was that they needed, that left people feeling concerned and uncertain about whether they could be in right standing with God. And worse, it would undermine the very message of salvation that Paul wishes to preach. Because if God has changed his mind once about what are the requirements for salvation, what is to keep him from doing so again? And suddenly this new people that he is forming that think that they are in a right standing with God find that instead they are out of God's favor. It is this concern that 
introduces the passage from Romans chapter 4 that was read for us this morning. At the end of Romans 3, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. If Paul is going to preach a message of salvation by faith, he needs to prove that this has always been how God saves his people and that this truth is revealed in the law itself. So he turns to the story of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham's story comes before the Ten Commandments and the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, but it's still part of the law. When Paul talks about the law, he's not meaning only the commandments or the list of rules that the Israelites are supposed to follow. He's talking about the entirety of Torah. Those first five books of the Old Testament uh, that form the foundation for all other revelation that comes after it. We heard the beginning of Abraham's story read this morning. He was living with his family in the land of Haran, still known as Abram, when God spoke to him, telling him to leave the place where he had spent the first 75 years of his life to go into the land that God would show him. We are not told about anything that made Abraham remarkable before his call. God chose him for his own purposes. The call was simply a free gift, an act of grace. But it's Abram's response that allowed him to receive the blessings that were promised at his call. There's a short little portion of the reading today that kind of passes by really easily, but is actually remarkable. God has spoken to Abram, and it says, Abram went, as the Lord has told him. This is faith. God spoke, and Abram trusted his word and obeyed. He was willing to stake everything, his life, his family, his prosperity, his legacy, on the word that was revealed to him by God. Faith is what made Abraham such a remarkable man. Faith is what allowed him to be used for God's purposes, not only to be blessed, but to be a blessing to the world. And it is this faith, Paul says, that sets Abraham right with God. Our reading from this morning came from Genesis chapter 12, but in Romans this morning, Paul actually quotes from Genesis chapter 15. Years after he had uprooted his family and moved to a foreign land, Abraham still didn't have all of the blessings that God had promised. Most importantly, he still did not have an heir. He was told that he was going to be the father of many nations, but he was over 75 years old and had no children. God reminded him and spoke to him again, told him of the blessing to come. And Abram asked, quite reasonably, how can the promises that you made to me come true? I'm an old man and I have no son. How can I become the father of a nation? So God took him outside on a clear, starry night. There's no light pollution in ancient Palestine. And he said, look at the stars. I'm the one who made them all. And I say that your descendants will be like the stars, more numerous than you can count. And it's at that point 
in Genesis 15, 6, that says that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the very beginning of God's people. It's immediately after this moment, actually, that God forms a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham's moment of faith beneath the stars still came quite some time before he was commanded to circumcise himself and all of his male heirs as a sign of his covenant with God. Faith was the seed that formed the people of God before the law even existed. And it is faith that allows us to join the constellation of Abraham's descendants, to become one of those who, like Abram, is able to enter into a relationship with God. Now, the language that Paul uses to talk about this moment where we enter into being one of God's people, that our relationship with him is set right, is justification. Justification is the language of a courtroom. It imagines each of us standing before God, the righteous judge, as he gives the verdict upon us. What will be the result of your life? And Paul has already told us in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is unveiled against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If God is a true and good judge, he must punish sin. He does punish sin. And he showed us in Romans chapter 2 and 3 that we are all guilty of sin. The Gentiles who did not have the law are guilty. The Jews who did have the law are guilty. The very law itself says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. So none of us can stand by right before a holy God. The Old Testament and the New both make it clear that God will judge all of humanity. And so what verdict will God have when he looks upon us? Everything hangs on the answer to that question. Because if we are declared guilty before God, the righteous judge, then we have no choice but to accept his sentence. And the sentence for sin, for any sin, no matter how small, is death. Not just physical death, though of course that comes to us all, but spiritual death. Sin cuts us off from God, who is the source of life. We are exiled from his holy presence, unable to maintain the relationship for which we were created. But the good news of the gospel that Paul brings to us and to all the people to whom he's writing is that God declares any who have faith in Jesus Christ to be not guilty. And this is not just something that is looking forward to something that will happen on Judgment Day. This is not just a matter of what will be your future, though of course your future is tied up to it. It is in the present at this moment. When we have faith, there is an immediate change in our status before God. We were guilty and now we are not. We were dead and now we are alive. We were under the reign of sin and now we are part of the kingdom of God you've grown up in the church or have been a Christian for a long time, this probably sounds like old news. But please don't let the fact that you've heard it before close your heart or your mind to how good it is. 
It's nothing less than a miracle. It's a gift we cannot earn. The end of the reading from Romans that we had heard today says that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And that's exactly what happens through Jesus Christ. The gift of faith is resurrection and new creation wrapped up into one. And we should, we must. We have an obligation to rejoice every time that we think of these things. Jesus himself puts it this way to Nicodemus. We needed to be born again. In this image that he has as he's talking to to Nicodemus the Pharisee, the image of birth is one of entrance into life. We had one type of life, physical life, but that was not enough. We needed spiritual life, and so we needed to be born again by the Spirit. And the good news that he carries to Nicodemus and to all who follow after him is God so loved the world that he sent his only Son so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Jesus was sent to be the true Adam, the one righteous man. He was sent to take our sins upon himself so that he could receive the punishment of death. He was sent to defeat the powers that held us captive. He was sent so that by his death we might have life. And it is faith that allows us to receive all of these benefits. As Paul showed, this is how God has worked from the very beginning. He gives the gift of salvation freely through faith. And I know that there's some part of us that still objects with that same childish plea, it's not fair. I hear what you're saying, that faith is the entrance into life, but I feel like I should be able to do something more to earn it. I should be able to do something to show you that I I really mean it. I I should have something to give to you besides faith that just seems like it's too easy. There is a story in the Old Testament of a man who came and has heard that the prophet Elisha can heal him. And he comes and says, I've got leprosy, and what do I need to do to be healed? And the prophet says, go and bathe in the Jordan. And he was a wealthy man, a rich man, a powerful man in the country that he came from, and he scoffs and laughs at what the prophet says and says, aren't there more beautiful rivers in the land that I come from? Aren't there greater things that I can do? And he starts to to drive off. And then his servant says to him, if the prophet had given you some monumental task, something that you could show and prove that you're worth, would you have done it? And he says, yeah, of course. Well, then won't you do this small thing that he asks? Won't you do the thing that he tells you will make you clean? And he turns around and he goes and he bathes in the Jordan. And he's cleansed. This is the gift that we are given freely. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Even our faith itself is something that he works and develops and grows in us. But we need to understand what is meant by faith because the stakes are so very high. It's nothing less than life and death. And so when we say that one must have faith in Jesus to be born again, what does it mean to have faith? 
Many of you probably know and have memorized Romans 10.9, which says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And oftentimes, depending upon what tradition you came from, this is the formula that is given to describe what faith means. We point to this verse and say it's a confession with your mouth, belief in your heart, and that is it. And everything in this is true, of course, but this verse also has to be taken within the context of the entire revelation of Scripture for us to truly understand what it means. We have to hold it together with James' statement that faith without works is dead, with Paul's own instruction that we are to live a life lived by faith, with Peter's warning that suffering will test the genuineness of our faith. When we have all of these things together, we begin to see that faith is not merely an intellectual exercise, something we assent to with our minds in one particular moment. It is an exercise for our whole being, a trust in God that will change our lives. In the passage that we heard from Romans today, Paul holds up Abraham as the paragon of faith, that we can, so we can look to his life to see something of what faith looks like. At that moment when Abraham was called in Genesis 12, when God asked him to leave his home and his family, to obey his command, he said yes. Faith led to obedience, to a life that was lived differently than his father and mother, his brothers and sisters, to any who were around him. A faith that does not lead to a changed life is no faith at all. At its heart, faith involves trust in God's word, that what he tells us to do is good, that what he asks of us when he asks obedience is actually part of his plan for our blessing and for us to be able to bless others. And so when we have his commands before us and we obey them, we are showing the faith that we have. Our lives should reflect this in our obedience to God's commands. But Abraham's life, as remarkable as it was, also reminds us that even a man of exceptional faith will not live a perfect life. He called his wife his sister during his travels because he was afraid of the powerful leaders in the lands that he was in. When he grew old, older, and his wife started to wonder whether or not there would ever be an heir. He took a concubine because they weren't certain that God would actually give Sarai a child. It caused all sorts of troubles for him later that he did that. Faith has real consequences for our life. Our life must reflect the faith that we have. But it's also important to know that this does not mean that you have to question your faith and your salvation with every mistake that you make. That would be a burden that no one can bear. Looking back again at that story of Naaman who went into the river, it's also important to remember that sometimes what God asks of us are not the great things that we want to have to show a life of faith. Sometimes he asks for us small things. Our obedience means being kind to our children even when we're feeling exhausted at the end of the day. Our obedience means caring for our neighbor who is sick. 
for speaking about Jesus and the life that he has in a moment where we are afraid. Our obedience means being a person of integrity even when it means that you're going to get behind in the company that you work for. There are a thousand small ways that we are called to obedience. And sometimes we want God to demand of us something remarkable, some huge sacrifice that can be the mark of my faith, to prove to myself that I have faith. And God says, all I've asked of you are these small things. Will you obey me in these and trust that it is enough? Faith can ask questions. This is important. Abraham asked in his life, how can this be to God? The Psalms raise questions of God. How can I trust you when I see the suffering around me? Faith can have moments where we go to God and say, I do not understand this. It doesn't make sense. But what makes it a response of faith is that we go to God with those questions. Rather than running from him, hiding from him, turning from him, we still trust that he has what we need. We are like the disciples who, when everyone fell away because Jesus said something hard, and he says, are you going to turn away too? He said, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's also important to remember that faith produces works, but it is not replaced by works. The moment where God credited faith to Abraham as righteousness was not the moment of his first call, the moment where he left home. It came later, after he had already walked and obeyed God, after he had learned to trust God even more. Faith his faith grow, grew through a life of obedience because as we obey God, we understand more of who he is. We see that his promises are good. We understand the life that we have in him, even through those times that are difficult. So I encourage you now to take just a moment to examine your own life. Does it show signs of faith? Do you trust God for your salvation enough that you can cease striving to prove yourself to Him? Stop trying to prove yourself to yourself. Stop trying to earn His love. Do you trust God enough to obey his commands, even when they are difficult? Do you trust him enough to put your hope upon Jesus and no one else, even when the world says that that's insane? Do you give thanks for the great benefits you have received from God through Jesus Christ, our Lord? It's good to ask questions like these from time to time, not just 
after a sermon on a Sunday morning, but daily as you go to bed, look back upon your day and ask, did my life today show faith? And the good news of the gospel, again, is that when we have faltered and made mistakes, because we will, God calls us to repent. And the restoration of our life in him is the same source as our initial life that we find in him. The good news is always good news, that God justifies sinners through the work of Jesus. He sets us right with him. So it's true on the first day you're a Christian. It's true on the 10,000th day you're a Christian. It's true on the day that you are dying. God justifies us through faith. And it is good news, too, that this does not depend entirely on you. The Scriptures tells us that Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that He is working in us when he reveals the lack of faith that we have, when he reveals those places that we falter, it is not so that he can then flip the script and then stand and accuse us before the judge. Jesus Christ is always the one who stands before us and pleads our case and says, it was my blood that paid for you. I paid for her and for him and for her. My payment was enough. Do you trust me? This is the gospel that we preach to ourselves over and over and over again. A gospel that we have life in God through faith in Jesus Christ and through faith alone. One of the things that can be particularly challenging if you're a parent is teaching this to your kids. It's hard at times. Their developing minds don't always understand things that are abstract. They wonder how it can be true. They're going to hear other messages as they grow up. They're going to come at stages in their life where they're trying to figure out, do I trust my parents? Do I trust other voices? How do I know who to trust? They will come at some point in their life where they begin to face awareness of guilt and shame, where they begin to believe that their behavior is the gateway to approval. We can think that we have communicated to them the gospel of grace. But we have to do it over and over again. Just as we have to communicate to ourselves over and over again the gospel. We'll find ways that they don't understand. And even there, you'll have times as a parent, I think, where you are tempted to feel shame and guilt about the fact that you did not quite communicate entirely the understanding of grace and God's goodness that you wanted to. Even there, there is grace and hope. We offer our children up to God in faith. We give them the language of grace, an understanding of repentance, a continually directing their hearts 
to God so that they can understand how that they can maintain a relationship with God, so that they can have life, so that they can be one of those innumerable stars that Abraham looked up and saw. I'll end by just reminding you. Never lose sight of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Never lose sight that by faith he gives us life. Eternal life. Life that begins at the very moment where we enter into him. Never lose sight of how good this is. Don't let your hearts become hardened to the good news. Remember over and over again what God has done and give thanks that he has brought us from death into life, that he has justified us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.